0: all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fucking ears what the fuck nicks what the fucking what the fucking ucks what the fucking avians hi i'm mark Marin. this is wtf thank you for listening i appreciate it appreciate you being here i really do i was gonna read an email i think where the hell did that thing go oh yeah i just got this one ed begley's on the show today ed begley jr you know the guy he's that guy that guy you know him you know him He's that guy. He's been that guy for a long time, man. He's been in like every movie. Well, he's been in a lot of movies. You know him, Ed Begley Jr. Come on, look. We had we had an amazing conversation about uh, Hollywood. I'm a little fascinated. With, let, let me. I'll, I'm fascinated with with something. I'll get back to it. I promise you. All right. I wanted to read this email. This is in reference to. Uh, me uh, realizing and not uh, in a bitter way or cynical way or a megalomaniacal or grandiose way that more people don't know me than people that do know me and that's fine i'm just happy that the people that do uh know me and like me are are there i i'm not uh, i was never looking for global domination i'm not an entertainment fascist don't know what i would do with that type of attention probably crumble but i appreciate everybody who digs what i do can only do it the way i do it And those who it resonates with, I am grateful for them. But who's this Marin guy subject line? That's in quotation. So I must have said that. I I don't know everything I said. Dear Mark, I was listening to one of your shows today. Will Forte or Andy Samberg. I can't remember as I listened to them both back to back. And I was pained to hear you say that even with your recent successes, nobody knows who you are. Well, I just want to say, screw you. What are we, chopped liver? you have a legion of malcontented unfulfilled antisocial assholes that depend on you two or three times a week to reassure us not that we are normal oh no but rather that we are not so abnormal as to be completely alone in our self-imposed prisons of guilt and shame we may not be the most glorious bunch but we appreciate you sincerely mark in portland oregon thank you mark i do not want to uh to make anyone feel that I'm not grateful for the people that enjoy what I do. And I certainly wasn't complaining. I'm happier out there. I would hope that some people are not as malcontent or filled with guilt and shame as I am or once was. Can I put it in the past? When can I put it in the past? When it goes away, Mark. When you're not sitting there asking yourself, is it in the past? I don't know. Oh, my physical results. I don't know how much I, I told you about my physical had my uh, yearly uh uh finger banging and, and and uh and uh ball coughing from uh from my doctor a lovely woman um but you get those tests you don't know you don't know you don't know what's gonna happen i don't eat shitty i haven't stuck my dick into too, into anything too weird lately But you still, there's that outside chance. It's like, I don't know. Does something crawl up in there? Well, did you use a condom, Mark? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. So, so what? Here we go. Here we go. HIV-1-2 screen, negative. Boom. Hepatitis C virus, AB result, non-reactive. Good. Chlamydia, DNA, SDA, report note, not detected. Good. Gonorrhea, DNA, SDA, not detected. Good. I didn't think I had any of those. Come on. Everything's looking good, man. Heartbeat's good. Blood pressure's good. Looks like all the urine-related business is good, whatever this stuff means. Triglycerides, normal. HDL cholesterol, normal. LDL calculated, high. Cholesterol, high as fuck. It says right there on here, cholesterol, high as fuck. I get this in the mail. Your cholesterol is very high. You need to be on cholesterol medication. Call to discuss your treatment options. How, what the fuck is that? Is it genetic? God damn it. When this happened, when I got that high cholesterol count, I'm like, holy fuck, I'm 50. I hate when that happens. Like I'm just moving through my life. I don't have to, you know, I see my cats are getting old. I understand that's a, that's a marker. I don't have kids, but the cholesterol thing just sent me spiraling. It's like, holy shit. Why should I even do any work on my house? How long do I got with this cholesterol? I don't know why I'm sharing this with you. I just want you to know that my cholesterol is a little high, and I'd appreciate it if you, uh, you know, help me not uh, you know, eat bad things and, and make me exercise. I don't want to make this a codependent relationship, but God damn it. What am I going to do about that? God damn it. I don't like being reminded that my body is a fragile thing, And it's not going to last forever. Don't know about you, but I'd appreciate not to be reminded of that. Every day when I wake up. So I had Begley's on today and we talked about the era, the late 60s and early 70s in Hollywood. And I have got, you know, I, I am mildly obsessed with that because I think a lot of my wiring was put in place by the pop culture of that time. 69 through 72 maybe 73 69 I was six six seven eight nine that's important I mean my personality was in place but I was already yearning for something dark then thankfully the big dirty hippie wave was crashing and it was turning into just a rock and roll free-for-all just fucking dirty long hairs everywhere and I wanted to be one of them man I had a poster in my room of Dennis Hopper on his motorcycle from the movie Easy Rider and Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson on the other bike, Dennis Hopper flipping the bird. That was 1970. So I'm six, seven years old. I've never seen the movie, but I knew I wanted to be part of that. I had a mini bike, a Suzuki mini bike, and I had the American flag fucking Easy Rider helmet. That's who I was. That's what I wanted to be. I also, for some reason, for some fucked up bad parenting reason, my parents let me have the blacklight poster of the sexual positions of the horoscope. I'm like, I'm, I'm seven, eight years old. I don't know where hell I got it at Spencer's Gifts or somewhere. I wanted to be part of that fucking crashing wave of the filthy hippie 60s right into the rock and roll free for all no ideological concerns it's not about love and peace it's about let me put this in there let me smoke some of that and is that gonna hurt me because it feels good right on man free it up do you care about the future fuck the future man let's just get on our bikes and ride that was me at seven so i get begley in here in the garage and I had no idea. Look, I'd, heard, I'd seen his name on the wall at the comedy store. He did do comedy. He did do it back in the day. He was around in the late 60s, early 70s. His dad was a character actor. He's in some westerns. He was in a 12 Angry Men. But Begley was wandering around. I'd heard he was a little out of control back in the day. And you see Ed Begley now. You're like, that guy? The Prius guy? The, the guy who runs his house on sun? But, you know, and he seems like a pretty sort of, uh, not preppy, but sort of like, conservative dude but he was fucking out of control back in the day and the thing that fascinates me about Hollywood at that time Hollywood has always been an industry town it's always been a showbiz town and in every generation or every era in Hollywood you know there's always been tabloid there's always been sorted business around show business but for most practical purposes it was a small town it was a small town there was a few networks few studios few labels but it wasn't blown out there wasn't cable there wasn't a million stations there wasn't a million production companies so if you were running around the hills of hollywood you know you were seeing you know those the fucking groovy people it wasn't all broken up you know if you had access you were in it you were in the star chamber you were in the upper echelon of the freak show that was hollywood at that time it was a small town and that whole laurel canyon scene In the early 70s, late 60s, it must have been so much fucking fun when culture was just exploding. Everything was new. You know, all of a sudden, people could, you know, have sex with more than one person publicly at a party. And there'd be people sitting around laughing while you did it in excitement, perhaps masturbating, snorting coke and whatnot. Maybe that's the 80s. You know what I'm saying? Late 60s, man. I romanticize that time. Seemed like it would have been fucking amazing, and Begley lived through it, and I had no idea. But there's some stuff here, man. It's going to be surprising. All right, this is me and Ed Begley Jr. Well, it's nice to meet you. It's nice to see you. You too, Ed Begley Jr. You're like a like a, you're a guy that everybody recognizes.
1: I'm lucky to still be doing it since
0: 1967. Isn't that amazing? Still
1: working. I can't believe it. I mean, I was just looking at your credits, and I'm like, oh my god,
0: that, where do you even start? What do you? It looks like you work every other week.
1: I I can't believe at age 64 I'm still doing it. Still 64? Got them
0: yeah, you still got them fooled. But the, yeah, but you're you're uh, an efficient character actor. I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy. Whatever they want to call me, I'm still doing it. But you grew up, did you, I mean, this was part of your life always, was it not? I mean,
1: Yeah, my dad was an actor, so I was around the sets and the, the backstage on Broadway, and I, I just wanted I, I wanted to do what my dad did. If he was a plumber, I'd probably be fitting, you know, galvanized
0: steel, galvanized pipe or yeah. copper pipe now. Yeah, and you'd probably be retired. You'd that's probably, right. <laughs> and living an entirely different life. That's right. But I, I mean, I've only had one other guy in here that, that comes from that, and that's Cranston. Like oh, his, Brian! Yeah, his dad was like a studio guy. Yeah, and he, uh, his, and, and because of that, it seems like because I don't think his father was necessarily well, ne, definitely not as uh, as big as your dad, but he's got a very kind of utilitarian kind of plumber yes. point of view of acting. He does. It's kind of interesting. You it know? is interesting, and like, he
1: grew up in the valley like me. He's from Canoga Park. I'm yeah. from Van Nuys.
0: Yeah, but his dad just went to work on the lot. So, yeah, and he's got this very sort of. Uh, but but your dad had sort of a larger career than that. He did, but he was a factory worker that made it in his
1: you know, 60s, really. Started really? to make it in his 50s. He started to make it in radio and on stage in his 50s, to be fair. But then he really made it by winning an Oscar and getting really good roles in his 60s. He was a guy that worked at the wire mold plant in Hartford, Connecticut. And he wanted to be an actor his whole life. And finally, he started to do it in Connecticut di- in Connecticut yeah like a dinner theater situation he w- he was with a uh, a group called the Guy Hedland Players mm-hmm. there in Hartford and he worked with them then he got a job at WTIC uh, station there and he you know did radio and he did a million voices cuz his dad was a what they call a hod carrier you know an irish kind of worker where they carry like two boards like this with a stick and they carry either bricks or mortar up uh-huh. they don't do the the stonemason right, work right. but they carry the shit up and to his dad was who that? Do it. His dad was that. He was a a strong lad, but he was a raconteur and he did different dialects and Uh what have you. So my dad learned that from him and
0: it served him well in radio, of course. That's amazing. And then how did he make his break? I mean, how did it sort of unfold that he ended up in Hollywood? What was the process? It was radio in Hartford. Yeah. Then he went to New York because he was doing well in Hartford. Yeah. And he did
1: well in New York in radio. And then he started to do some stage in New York and he did well on stage. And then you know, Hollywood Beckon, different movies, Boomerang and other movies like that, and Tulsa and Sorry, Wrong Number, and you know, he did a lot of those movies and eventually you know, then eventually Twelve Angry Men. And that was the movie. Yeah. That was the big break? That was the big break for all those guys, you know. For, Amazing. You know, it's Jack the- Warden and my dad and Ed Bins and you know, all those guys, you know, Robert Weber, E. G. Marshall. Henry Fonda had already been he was already a he guy. was uh, an established actor. Right.
0: It was, it's, that movie still holds up. It's still, oh, yeah, uh, Lee Cobb, Lee J. Cobb. He
1: was an established character actor, but that took him to another level. That was amazing. Amazing.
0: I mean, that's a, like, Lee J., did you meet Lee J. Cobb? I never met Lee (laughs) Cobb. I I wish I had. I know his daughter. Your your dad's friends.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I know. So
0: your dad won an Oscar for that? No, he won an Oscar for
1: Sweet Bird of Youth. Oh. He won it in 63 for the year 1962. I don't know that I've seen that film. It's with Paul Newman and Geraldine Page. It's a good movie. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So you grew up in that home? Yeah, but we grew up in the valley. He had a lot of friends who were like ex-factory workers from Hartford, but then there was one family we used to visit when we drive up to San Francisco, we'd visit these this couple, this old couple. And I yeah. was like, can we finish up with these old people? I want to get up and ride the the you know, the trolley car in yeah, San yeah. Francisco. I want to ride the trolley. Uh, who are these people? Their name his name was Paul and her the woman's name was Bella. It turned out that was Paul Muni. Oh, really? And I was like in the presence of greatness, and yeah. like at a twelve-year-old, I didn't know. Just old people. Oh, well, you did a play with him. What was the play again? Yeah. Then I years later realized it was Twelve Angry. I mean, it was Inherit the Wind, for yeah. which they both won Tonys. And this was a guy that was in Fugitive from a chain gang and mm-hmm. many other... He was a brilliant actor. And yeah, he was huge. Well, what do he, kids was, know? You know, they, I didn't know, know anything. anything.
0: So you're a kid, you're growing up... Uh, but So your dad wasn't like a, a major movie star, so you didn't have to... No, but, but then he started to hit it. When he won an Oscar, he
1: started to go on to another level and he had like a business manager now and he yeah. had all this other stuff. And then he did a movie with Debbie Reynolds. And I, of course, knew Debbie Reynolds sure. from Singing the Rain and Tammy and all that. My dad's hanging out with Debbie Reynolds and yeah. we went into Beverly Hills, which we never went to beverly hills right we didn't know those people and so we're going <laughs> to beverly people. hills and hanging out and meeting carrie fisher and wow she's married to harry carl at that point they had this fat house with this big pool it was like jesus christ what did i fall into <laughs> my dad
0: <laughs> this is- my
1: dad hooked me up here this is the big time
0: big time so that's when you met carrie fisher yeah are you guys friends we're still friends to this day i love her yeah now all right so you're in this and you want to be this and you're in high school because you started acting what were you you were in your teens weren't you yeah, I wanted to be an actor and a comedian from the earliest
1: age. My dad taught me some stupid joke that I would tell in front of adults and they would laugh. It was a ridiculous joke. But uh, I, I I wanted to do what he did. And then finally, I did some theater in high school and I did some other like summer camp theater. Yeah. And then finally, uh, I started to work at age 17. I But I didn't get Disney? it. I, the first job I did was My Three Sons. Oh,
0: Fred McMurray. Yeah, I had
1: one day on My Three Sons and I literally thought, now that I'm in Screen Actors Guild, which I wanted to be in Screen Actors Guild my whole life, yeah. Now I'm in SAG, I was literally waiting by the phone. Yeah, Man, right. it's going to ring now. Let me stay <laughs> close to it. Good. I, I would just did a My Three Sons, and it would just aired. That phone's going to start ringing. Did, but
0: didn't your father give you the lowdown? Oh, he, he
1: did, but I didn't believe him. I right. thought he's trying to, like one time, I, I also was, years ago, a compulsive gambler. When I was a kid, we went through Vegas, and I said, yeah. put a quarter in this thing. Yeah. I was convinced that I was going to win the jackpot. If he just put a, you know, I was like. Fourteen or something. Please put the quarter in the thing. He put it in. And he had his back to me, and he did a thing and pulled it. He turned around and went. Put his arms up in the air. and Went. See, you didn't win anything. I was convinced he didn't put it in. I was convinced so much of my fate that I was des- that I deserved something, not having to work for it. It was the same with acting. So, I had this horrible attitude. Yeah. Wake me when I'm famous, kind of attitude. I'm going to be a big star like my dad. Come on, get me a series.
0: The, the, get- so you track that same that sense of, of entitlement and and slight compulsion. Of delusion to the same thing that's sort of compulsive gambling to everything else oh it's yeah so-
1: i just like you know yeah get me a dad can't yeah. you get me a gun smoke <laughs> get me a perry mason <laughs> what's the problem <laughs> And I didn't get it. And I would go up on interviews for some of these. He got me an interview for Gunsmoke, for God's sake. Or yeah. One of those shows, a wagon train or something. I went and I read. I sucked. Yeah. I didn't get the part. Did you? Just, I what do
0: you want? What was it for? Like the kid on the wagon? I mean, what kind some, of some <laughs> some sort of thing like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And
1: I didn't get it. and I was shocked. I didn't realize you have to train whatever if you're going to be a plumber like your father. You got to apprentice and you got to see how the steel galvanized galvanized pipe fits together and how the copper is
0: but, welded. But he but he did step up and say like, all right, I'm, I got a guy go meet this guy the casting agent you know see if my kid can fit into this he and, did but there's I only w- so
1: much you can do right exactly and i didn't get anything then finally he got me i begged him uh, i wanted to take acting lessons yeah. and he got me acting lessons With and who? then uh paul kent at the melrose workshop and then after that i started to work now what kind of like paul kent now was he a, a big guy he was not a a huge uh you know uh figure in the acting you know uh you know in the in the uh, acting lesson world in LA I later studied with some people who were very big in that world I went to the Strasburg Institute I studied briefly with Lee Strasbourg you know in a big classroom kind of a thing not right. a little you know tenner but that three was people. well into your career yeah that was a few years into it 1970 I started doing that then there was somebody I met there called Peggy Fury she mm-hmm. worked there mm-hmm. and she was great mm-hmm. and she you know st- uh, great people like Angelica Houston studied with her later and, and uh Sean Penn and other one people
0: what is the uh just for my own curiosity because i got to do some acting tomorrow oh boy on what uh, on my my show for ifc the show marin i did 10 i did uh i did 10 we're doing 13 more and i look at my congratulations thank you very much we i look at myself in an actor as an actor i think i'm close but i think i suffer from the same thing that a lot of comics do there's a slight self-consciousness so what if you were to give me one pointer in terms of uh uh, of acting that I could be aware of, something that I could have in my head or or enter some, a scene with, what would that be?
1: A, a couple things. The one thing, Spencer Tracy said it so well, acting is listening. Mm-hmm. If you're really, really listening, mm-hmm. the, the next then when you next speak, you're going to be engaged whatever the lines are. Uh-huh. And then once you get it once you get it going, you're into the scene, really forget about that. Did I get that line right and all right. that? It's about what you're thinking. I want to get that guy to give me my goddamn $500 back. Yes. That's the subtext. The right. lines may be, are you, ha, have you been in town for the full week? Yeah. Whatever the line is. But yes. the subtext is, are you going to give me my goddamn $500? <laughs> and th- and, that's, and then you'll be engaged with that thought. That's one thing. Yeah. Acting is listening. If right. you're really listening and staying with your subtext, yeah. then the words just come naturally. Okay. And the other thing, this is a great thing, this guy, Roy London, who was an acting teacher I studied with in the 90s when I was working on some show and he said something that I dismissed at the time. I went, what does that even mean? He said, the most interesting thing to, to watch Uh, a performer do is how they deal with pain. I went, that's bullshit. I don't wanna see somebody, oh, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. But it wasn't that, that wasn't what he was saying at all. How you deal with pain and you keep the, try to keep the lid on the pot. Right. You know, how Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice, what did this woman go through? Then you later see what Sophie's Choice was and what have you. And even, and it works in comedy too. Laurel and Hardy are carrying a fucking piano up the stairs. Yeah. And then they fall. Yeah. And not only do they fall, the piano falls on them. And you're laughing your ass off. <laughs> right. It's how they deal with that pain. Right. Comedy or drama. And uh, again, you know, you don't want to say, oh, I hurt so bad. Right. You know, there's a time to right. show pain, there's a time to not show it. But that's a universal rule. You find pain is another word, discomfort, anxiety, whatever yeah. the word is for you that scene. You just describe me. <laughs> there you go. You're going to do very well. <laughs> I, I got to hide them better, I guess. You know, and, and if you look at any scene, what really engages you in Raging Bull and any movie that you really like, great movies, it's how these people are dealing with pain, emotional, physical, whatever. And it's and that's what's compelling as a, a fellow human to watch somebody in this journey. Wow, that's how they deal with pain. Interesting. They,
0: maybe I'll use that information next time I'm in pain. Right. That's interesting. man. that's interesting to me that you said, like, uh, you dismissed it initially. Isn't it, aren't, when you get older, isn't it amazing how all of a sudden something that someone said to you, you're like, oh fuck. That was that wasn't bullshit at it all. It wasn't bullshit at all. It's like what well, those are the best things to yeah. hear. Because it sticks in your head as something you fought against and you 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 know, like, you yes. know, that I'm not gonna and then all of a sudden But it's stuck in there for a reason. You know, like some part of you knew, like, nah, that's deep. You just yeah. did could, All you that could, stuff, those old women
1: said to you when you were kid, the aunts, the grandmothers, you yes. know, wait till you have kids of your own. That's sage wisdom right yeah, there, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff. You'll learn the value of a dollar. Like, yeah. Another brilliant statement. Sure, you know? sure. And you don't give a fuck when you're younger. No.
0: So, all right, so now you're, you're taking these acting
1: classes. What are you, 20? Yeah, I'm 20 years old, 1970. I'm 20. I'm taking acting. What's classes. going on
0: in fucking LA? In this, you must be it must be out of control. 1970, Los oh, Angeles. Oh, it was insane. I, mean- I, I it, from
1: 1971 through 78, I partied hardy. I really, I did everything you could do
0: with who? Well, you don't have to everybody.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody, famous and not famous. I was at Tana's every night of my life. Me and a. Perfect. There's a at Dan Yeah. You see the crossword? I do the crossword every day. Yeah. I do. Uh, I, I talk to Harry Dean Stanton because he does it every day too because he thinks it keeps his mind alert and it must. I would see him every night. We'd hang out at Tana's every single night. We finally, this speaks volumes, the story I'll briefly tell you about how much we were there. We were there at Tana's all the time and we both got a movie together, this uh, Warren Oates movie directed by Monty Hellman called Cockfighter. And we're in Georgia and we're there about five days or something and went, We should, Harry, we should call up Tanas and say hello to Guido. He probably misses us. We've been gone five, when were we last gone for five (laughs) days? So we call up Tanas. Hello. Good evening it's Tanas. It's Guido. Guido, hi, it's Ed Begley and Harry. Hey, it's Harry. Harry and I are here. We just want to say hi. We're in Georgia. Jesus Christ, I'm glad you called. We're going to call the police. I swear to God, we thought thought you guys died and leave the gas on by mistake at Harry's house. We thought you were both dead. Five days. Jesus Christ, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he couldn't believe we were not there.
0: That's am- well. That's like I've heard about you know what was going on there and what that place represented, uh, that particular bar and restaurant. But it, it, who was there on the scene at the, in that time? Like I mean, I, I know that Harry Harry Dean still goes there every week. Yeah, he goes there a lot. Uh, but in that day, I had heard by way of
1: rumor that Jack Nicholson went in there. Yeah, and so I would go, and I heard he occasionally once in a blue moon even went into the Troubadour to see people perform. Yeah, so I went back and forth between the Troubadour and is hoping to see Jack Nicholson. My dream was realized, he came in What he went there rarely. Yeah. You know, he wasn't hanging out all the time. He was up at his home, you know, preparing for the next part Mm -hmm. and doing what he does. Because he's a big star at that point. What Five Easy Pieces. Yeah. Cuckoo's
0: Nest was coming up. That's
1: right. Yeah. And so- I saw him there. That sealed the deal. I just hung out there every night hoping he'd come back. Yeah. And uh, I later became friends with him. Uh, there's a uh, wonderful actress, a friend of mine, Cindy Williams, and she invited me because she was going with Harry Giddis, a friend of Jack. Cindy Williams La- from television? Exactly. From Shirley, Laver- and La- yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful actress. At that point, she'd been in the conversation. She'd mm-hmm. been with Travels with My Aunt. And she, this is before Laverne and Shirley, and she was, uh, and is a wonderful film actress. And so, uh, she somehow, I met Cass Elliott through her and uh, and th- so suddenly I was invited up to Jack Nicholson's for dinners and yeah. what have you and going out to the opening of the movie Concert for Bangladesh with Jack Nicholson and wow. Cass Elliott was like, how did I fall into this? You, you know must be a good guy. Well, I don't know about that, but I was certainly,
0: uh, <laughs> they, I had a lot of fun and I remember it all. Well, they like hanging out with you. It seems like you have a lot, like you always show up places. You know, I even do. if it's for a second, you're like, oh, was that it Begley on the drums in that in Spinal two, Tap? Yeah, in two seconds in Spinal Tap? That's right. <laughs> you know, it was like, what was that?
1: Yeah, I love it. I, uh You know, yeah, that's because of my dear friend, Christopher Guest, you know, and, and Rob Reiner and everybody and Harry Shearer and Michael McKean, they're all friends of mine. So they brought me yeah, in to I, do the drummer.
0: Let's build up to that. So it's now 1972. You've already worked with Monty Hellman.
1: Uh, No, that happened actually in 74. But 72, I'm hanging out at the Troubadour. I'm doing like movies with Rock Hudson and Dean Martin. I did a Western with him. And you're a kid. I'm a kid. Uh And then finally, you know, through people that I... Rock Hudson and who? Dean Martin.
0: Did you now? Did you spend time with Dean Martin, or were you just little sort of, bit in of time. And
1: out? He wasn't big on hanging out with me or most people. He had, you know, he kept to himself. I know. I read that.
0: Did you ever read that book, Dino, by Nick Toshes? No, I never it's read it. I'd like to read it. It's 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 fascinating because he really paints him as this guy that was very much uh, a loner. Yeah,
1: Rock yeah. Hudson was very friendly. Yeah, very nice, and uh, you know, he was very. Uh, you know, very nice. Uh, Dean wasn't rude, but he just wasn't as inclusive.
0: So okay, so you do that stuff, and you now why? You know, I'm a I'm a comedy store guy. Why is your uh, name on the wall of the oh, comedy store?
1: Oh, I've left out a, a major chapter. I started a uh, a comedy a stand up comedy career back in 1969 with a partner by the name of Michael Richards. We had a duo, uh-huh. and we worked at like the, the trou- Michael Richards, the Michael Richards from Seinfeld and uh-huh. what have you. And we had a duo, and we played at the Troubadour back in. Nineteen sixty-nine, and Doug Weston wanted to sign us to a
0: contract and what have you. And- so you were opening for Musical acts? We were. That's. I mean, a lot of like. I'm finding this out. You know, before the store opened, and really officially, in what seventy two, seventy three. We were one. We were there the week that they opened. Me and Michael Richards. Which, when it was Sammy still, opened, Sammy
1: it? Uh, still owned the comedy store, right? So Sammy's. Uh, so
0: Bursky was parking cars or something. Or I don't
1: remember, but uh, yeah, Sam. It was Sammy's place,
0: right? So, but before that, there was no real venue other than opening for musical acts
1: exactly like steve martin as well and richard pryor and other people and lily tomlin other people play the troubadour the or the ice house michael and i never got any opening act gigs he went off and joined the military so i was on my own so i did a single and i started to get bookings at the ice house and i would open for jennifer warrens and i would open for Uh, Oh, God, I opened for Loggins and Messina and and Poco and John Sebastian. At the Ice House? No, that was later. uh, At the Troubadour, I also opened for... uh, Neil Sedaka and Don McClain. Don McClain kind of discovered me at the Troubadour. And because of him, I went and I would occasionally open for him and open for other acts. Uh- well,
0: that's interesting. So that, so, well, oh, who else? So Cheech and Chong was also the big success Oh, yeah, story they were added. huge then. Well, that because it was, uh, what's his name? Don Adler? Is that the? Lou Adler, Lou yeah. Adler. Well, it was sort of fascinating to me that they were made by the music industry. I mean, there was no comedy club. So all these music execs would be at the troubadour because they had acts there, right. And and so Hollywood would come in. It was Hollywood was a much more intimate environment. At it, that was. Time. it was like, you know, you could go to Tana's, you could go like these places were the places and it wasn't all spread out. And then the business was intimate. So you could actually be at a place and someone could see you, and it could change your life. Exactly. And it did for many people. So, all right. So you're, you're doing the Troubadour. They, and also I want to just, you know, give some love to the Ice House because I work there, you know, a few times a year I'll go out there and I, I never, it's, down, it's right down the street. You know, I do the store too, but I'll go do an hour or so. And that room actually has more history as a comedy room than any room in the city. I think you're right. And and it's like, it's one of the greatest comedy rooms in the world still.
1: It is. It's wonderful. (laughs) It's amazing. I was working there in the late 60s. Michael and I went up there a few times and then I started in the early 70s actually getting paid to go there and perform. What was your act? I was a prop comic. Uh I had a whole bunch of props, you know, and different things. And I did uh, satire on TV and commercials, one of those kind of acts. Uh And uh, it was mildly amusing. I got booked a lot. I did The Bottom Line and Max's Kansas City and The Troubadour and The Ice House and clubs and colleges and concerts. What'd you
0: have, like 20? 20 minutes?
1: Yeah, I had about 20 minutes.
0: That's all you needed when you're opener. That's all
1: I needed when I yeah, just an opener I would do it and man, I'm opening for Dave Mason. I was a big Dave Mason fan. Neil yeah. Sedaka and these people and Don McLean discovers me and goes, "I want my manager to handle you." And now Don McLean's manager is handling me. It was like big stuff and were you
0: doing the shows like dinah and mike douglas i did
1: mike douglas show very good yeah yeah i I did the mike douglas i didn't do dinah
0: so so you were a working comedian i was at 22 23 years old what how old were you i was uh 20 yeah 22 23 exactly so you're learning you're, you're getting your comedy chops together you're doing parts on television little parts in movies right and it's all starting to happen but I got, so McLean got you a booking agent but you must have, you must have a regular agent I had a regular agent but when I signed with Don McLean's
1: manager he yeah. wanted me to stay away from doing these small parts in movies he wanted to you know groom me as a comedy star mm-hmm. so he um, you know he he actually had me turn down some things so that I could just concentrate on you know uh, uh, on stand up and uh, write more material or what have you, and mm-hmm. it was a good idea. But I was lazy. I I didn't have the work ethic to keep writing.
0: Well, what was the what was the uh, the sort of drug intake at that time?
1: Oh, huge! <laughs> I I drank a quart of vodka every day, nearly every day. I drank a quart of vodka nearly every day from seventy one through seventy eight. Really? I did any whatever you got pills, blow, anything. You were I, just that guy. I was that guy. I was the party animal that could. You know, not only do that, but drive. I would get in my car and drive around L.A. Yeah, I don't know how I didn't kill anybody.
0: Yeah, well, it was it was there's less people here then. Yeah,
1: so, exactly. <laughs> it wasn't. It, you just you
0: take fountain. That's what you. Yeah. do. <laughs> you know. One
1: night I ran into all these cars at Sunset and San Vicente, right in front of the cops, two sheriff's department guys, because this was L.A. County, uh-huh. you know, property. It wasn't. There was no West Hollywood back then. L.A. Sheriff's kind of ran Sunset Strip, uh-huh. right next to them. I leapt out. I said. I talked to all the cars I had. Guys, I'm going to talk to you in a second. Let me deal with this. Officers, do me one favor, one only. It's Christmas Eve. It was Christmas Eve, 1975. Cuff me and take me in. It looked at me like I was insane, which yeah. I was. But I'm on so much adrenaline. I'm talking something like this. Yeah. I'm like on vodka and Chardonnay and, 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 Quaaludes. <laughs> and, and Quaaludes. And Quaaludes back in and, the day. And so I'm saying, cuff me and Tech. What are you talking about? I yeah. said, I've been pumping these brakes since back at Doheny. Uh-huh. The brakes don't work. This car is defective. I'm going to sue them. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to sue the motor company, and I'm going to make a million dollars. It will help me if you come. Well, calm down, son. Calm down. Have <laughs> you been drinking? Of course, it's Christmas Eve. I had a couple beers. Whatever. Write it up whatever way you want. I'm rip-roaring drunk. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) but these brakes I had them under the car checking the brakes is there a leak in that master cylinder I'm gonna pull up in the parking brake is is a cable broken yeah Uh, for all this bullshit there was nothing wrong with the brakes I couldn't see the people I was so
0: blind drunk and And they let me get in the car and go that was the root that's the roots of your political activism right there yeah (laughs) yeah
1: Not only did they not arrest me, they let me get in the car and drive home. And the guy whose car I destroyed, I convinced him. I went up and hung... I went over. He's dialing for a taxi. The guy whose car I totally destroyed, a Honda Civic. I almost killed the guy. And I said... I will not have it sir I hung up the phone on him I'm driving you home Mm -hmm. and he's on crutches because he had been in a skiing accident he's driving with crutches and one foot in a cast (laughs) and you destroyed his car I've destroyed his car I said I won't have it I'm driving you home but by the time I fill out all the paperwork with the cops there's no more adrenaline left so now where do you live again (laughs) You're down in, okay, you're Franklin, Franklin Cohen. I'm going to get you home, my brother. And he's like, let me out of the car. He's like, hit me with his crutch. Let me out of the car. Because yeah. I'm like smashing into uh, rearview mirrors on, on sunset. Not mm-hmm. intentionally. Mm-hmm. I'm just whacking these mirrors with my right v- rearview mirror, uh, breaking them. Not intentionally. I can't control the vehicle now because I'm back to, you know, <laughs> being, being on all these substances. And he got home. And the cops aren't around. He, yeah, the guy got out of you the car. You got lucky. I'm, yeah, I made it home somehow
0: and that was you were still living in the valley? Uh yeah, I didn't
1: make it to the valley. I crashed at a friend's house uh, on Laurel Canyon. I couldn't even make it back to the valley.
0: Laurel Canyon's rough when you're wasted. Oh yeah. <laughs> Lots of turns apparently. You can't yeah. go straight
1: up there apparently.
0: All right, so you're okay. So now your career is sort of being uh driven towards being a stand-up yeah. Like being like I mean, I guess like you know Steve Martin was doing props at that time. Correct. Gary Mule Deer was doing props at that time. Right. Uh Gallagher was around. Correct. So there's a bunch of prop guys. Yep. So and you're partying with you're running around Hollywood. Yep. At all the uh you're 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 in the mansions with all the uh the freaks from the seventies. Oh the yeah. 70s. Oh, yes. Did you ever run into Manson?
1: <laughs> That's interesting you should say. I actually met Charles Manson. I when, went out to the Spawn ranch. In 1969. Come on! 68 or 69. For what? My friend, James, my friend James had a friend. I can't remember his name. James will remember. A guy I went to college with. James and I, James Jeremias and I, said, let's go out to this ranch. My friend's living in one of those rooms above the thing. We went to visit this guy. This guy was shooting speed. This guy, I can't remember his name. We visited him. He said, and we hung out with him. And uh, he, he might have shot some speed. We certainly, I never... Did that? Yeah. Neither did James, of course. And so he said, "Well, we're go- I got to go down the main house. Come down with me, and maybe we'll smoke a joint." Okay. Went down the main house. There was a guy there with some long hair. He yeah. was kind of in charge. We smoked a joint with him. His name was Charlie, apparently. Yeah. And so we hung out with him and some other people. It was the Manson gang. Yeah. We hung out with the Manson gang. Wow. And then later learned who they were. You know, when uh, the Tate-LaBianca sure. murders occurred. But we hung out with them there back at the Smond
0: Ranch in the late 60s isn't that interesting though because that is it, to me is like i don't think people really understand just how this landscape how hollywood like I, I i know it just from being here for a long time but it goes back to the intimacy of the business is that like if you're doing drugs in hollywood in, in 69 70 and you're hanging out in certain circles you're gonna know somebody out there exactly you, you, it's just sort of like there's this guy charlie's he got this place like yeah let's go party let's take a ride it yeah. sounds fun and yeah. you, you sat there you you don't have any recollection of him being like you know throwing the gaze on you or anything no not at all he's just, it's just some weird hippie
1: guy that kind of <laughs> seemed to be in charge you know but all those people were there I didn't know which one was you know sure, Krenwinkel sure. and this right, one was right. this one I didn't, I didn't really get their names I didn't but when I saw the report I, I remembered meeting him. I went, right. wow, that was the guy. He was the guy kind of in charge down at the main house.
0: And But at that time, like a commune or that type of lifestyle was not that unusual. Not at all unusual. There's nothing unusual about it. Only yeah. in retrospect,
1: after the, sure. the big horrible events happened, I went, oh my God, that was that guy and those people were probably Patricia and this one and that one. And right and tax and all of them wow that's fascinating
0: to me yeah so okay so now you're you're in it you're in the you know the great explosion the great post-60s explosion of uh of just you know pure debauchery of hollywood yeah the now, worst order right well so how much of your i mean you were still working i mean you're working through all this i was you're... working
1: yeah i had this ironclad rule i went wow i never drink when i work right i would actually say that and i right. believed it right I would just drink 20 beers that would be me not drinking right i look back at some of these movies like blue collar i started to get parts in good movies with, with a uh, prior did you Iyata hang out with Koto. him much Yes, he was very nice. Was Jop he at Cotto, the store? Harvey Keitel? Huh? When, was
0: he at the store when you were there? I mean, what, how he how was off- at
1: the store? Uh, not what I was at the store. He was the. He might have been there, but I never after. saw him till later. I kind of got on to
0: So uh, you were at the store work. when Sammy owned it, and then Mitzi came in. Were you still working there?
1: I worked there a bit after that, even as as late as 1980. I still did stand up occasionally. I would uh-huh. go down to the La Jolla store, right, or the Westwood store. Oh, really? I certainly would still. I would go on a bit. You know, in the belly room or the uh, other room, I yeah. can't remember.
0: The original room, the main room, the yeah, belly yeah. room. But it was that you didn't hang out there.
1: No, I stopped. I cut way back on doing it in about 76, not about exactly 76, because I got married. I thought, wow, I'm married and my wife's now suddenly pregnant. I don't want to spend all my life in saloons because mm-hmm. that's what comedy clubs were back then. There were right. saloons, which they are today. And so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna stop doing the stand-up. I'll just concentrate in the acting because I was doing. I did a, a wonderful movie called Citizens Band with Jonathan Demme. Yeah, I done, uh, you know, Blue Collar with Yafit Kotto and Harvey Keitel and, and Richard Pryor, directed by Paul Schrader. I up doing other Paul Schrader movies. Which Paul Schrader movies? I did uh, Cat People. I did uh, Hardcore. Hardcore. I did Blue Collar. I did in very recent year, fairly recent years, Autofocus. Uh, Auto Paul Schrader's given me a lot of work. Yeah, that guy fascinates me. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's like, he's he's hardcore, man. He is. He's an amazing writer, an amazing director, and a dear friend. And he was giving me work, and then Jack Nicholson was a friend, and I got a job on Going South. That's, a,
0: that's a pretty funny movie. It
1: was a very funny movie. Yeah. And I was on that, and I was in such party mode then. This is how bad I was. I'm in the... El Presidente Hotel with a drink in my hand, trying to outdrink Jack Nicholson's father figure, this guy, Shorty George Smith, who, yeah. you know, you oh, can't Western outdrink actor? this guy. He was a, not an actor. He was worked for the railroad company in Jersey, but uh-huh. he was a guy that had a face, you could tell. Oh, he this had, was Jack's...
0: Uh, Jack uh, Nicholson's... The guy he, com-
1: right. Yeah, he was married to Lorraine, Jack's uh, aunt, actually. Who okay. Thought Jack thought was his sister for a while. Oh, that's right. There's a complicated Sister, daughter, sister, daughter, sister, daughter. <laughs> yeah. And so... Uh, yeah, so uh, I tried to outdrink him. Who comes up behind me, takes a drink out of my hand, puts it down, said, "You got to get outside and see some, get some fresh air and see the Durango sights, dude. You're drinking too much." Who was that person that thought I was too far gone? That was John Belushi. John, really? I was too far gone for John. John was like, "Dude, there's a limit. There's a friggin' limit." Really? Yeah. So you were. John playing. saved my life. John and Judy got me out of that bar. I might have drank myself to death. I was
0: trying to outdrink a guy you couldn't outdrink. Oh, my God. So you were, like, I can't, it's just amazing. How much, like, like how much of the bonds of, of, of these groups? I mean, because, like, you know, you now, even when I came in, when I was hanging out with Kenison and that, the comedy store. Oh, and doing wow, all,
1: great era, Sam, yeah.
0: yeah. And I did, you know, I was, uh, like, 22, and I was doing a lot of blow, do, drinking a lot, living in the house up behind the comedy store that Mitzi owned. Oh, first.
1: yes, that house. Yeah. Wow, that famous house, yes, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. I lived there for about eight months. I still see Argus once in a while in He's, some of that gang.
0: He goes, he goes up every night. Well, yeah, you see him at the, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well he goes on stage every night still. Right. And
1: Unbelievable. God bless him.
0: And well who were the guys you hung out with back then in the comics?
1: I, I would see uh Jay there, Jay Leno, mm-hmm. I would see David Letterman, I would see Were the, you buddies? I was friendly with him. I didn't hang out with right. him after the thing, but when I was at the La Jolla comedy store, there were guys like that. I think Jay was there at the same time at that La Jolla, yeah. that condo that they had when sure. you were playing on the, the La beach. Jolla. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe Letterman came when I yeah. was leaving or something, you know. Right because uh, when I see those guys, they certainly remember. I remember the Invisible Man routine. You had that thing where you walked. <laughs>
0: yeah, the, the invisible
1: the, Man, tell him I can't see him.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: they, they, they remember, remember the these this stupid prop comic bit that I
0: did. Oh, that's hilarious. How much of the bonding that went on in the 70s was, revolved around drugs? A lot of it. When yeah. I
1: got sober, which was uh, 79, I really uh, bottomed out in 78, but you know, I, I kind of had a a few days left of me in December of 79, but I, uh, when I stopped hanging out in, you know, in those places, I, I had to change friends to a certain extent and that was good. Yeah. You know, because I was really headed for a toe tag.
0: What was the bottom like? I mean,
1: what, what the bottom was I almost died. I had, you know, uh, said, uh, once again for the 50th time after having the DTs or what have you, not the 50th, but like the third or fourth time after I had gotten really sick, I went, okay, I'm just going to have a little wine with dinner. I'll be real careful. And then uh, two weeks after that was the last time I went out in 78 in a big way, two weeks after I'll have a little wine with dinner, I was in full blown, you know, uh, you know, a grandma blow and a, you know, uh, Vodka tonic and what have you and blackout. And I woke up after that going, I can't take the DTs again. I called up this doctor. I said, I need some medicine for the thing. Can I get some Valium? And my regular doctor wasn't in. The other guy prescribed to me Thorazine, which doesn't mix well with liquor. I think he was trying to kill me. I'm not sure. So I kept taking them, waiting for that Valium kind of, you know, sand the rough edge yeah. off the uh, hangover thing. Yeah. And it wasn't happening like that. Thorazine is a very different drug. Took one, two, three, four. Kept taking them, not as a suicide attempt. There right. Was a half of, I took about eight of them. And then finally went out and finally was awoken by my then wife, my first wife. Wonderful lady. She slapped me around, not for the usual reason. Yeah. She slapped me around saying, wake up. Your color's bad. Your breathing's bad. There's something wrong. There's something really wrong. Were you both using? Uh yeah, me more than her. Yeah. She was kind of a social '70s right. kind of a right. you know person, but I was the real hardcore. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Cindy Williams actually drove me to uh, Cedar Sinai, and I made it. They gave me some epicac and got out whatever the remainder of the pills was there. But I was, my heart and lungs were shutting down. Oh, I was dying. God. And I made it to Cedars and lived and went, I will never, and I had a little one-year-old daughter and she was trying to hold me. I'm in this bed with all these tubes and IVs and going in. She couldn't get to me because of the tubes. I went, this is as low as a person can go. My daughter who I cherish beyond anything and my wife who I love, they can't really hold me because of the tubes that are going into me. Mm. Never again. Never mm. again. Being relative, I, for a couple of days in '79, I tried a few beers and half a bottle of wine, and just made me sick. So I stopped. And then you got it. You got you got straight with it. I got straight with it. Yeah. But '78 was the bottom when I almost died. September 30th of '78, and uh, I've, you it's know, it's amazing that, do well, that again.
0: But that's well, that's the year you did going south. That's the year you did that. Blue collar came out. Going south came out. So yep. like, you know, at the worst of your using, uh, you you did some big movies.
1: Yeah, and then and I got then, that same year, just a short time after that, I got this movie, The In-Laws, so I had to go off to another country, Mexico. We went down to Cuernavaca oh, to that's shoot that's right.
0: That. You played the FBI guy.
1: Right. And oh, I'm, I love that fucking movie. And I'm going down there to... Thank you. I love that movie, too. Oh, it's Peter a great Falk movie. and Alan Arkin. Oh, my God. So I'm going down with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin, uh, going down to meet them there. They're already there, and I'm going to work on this, this show, and, uh, you know... I, they got free drinks on the plane, what have you? And yeah. I know I'm going to get high, but somehow I don't. I'm just done with it, yeah. and I go down and do that movie totally straight. Yeah, and it did very well for me. It got me other work because it yeah. was a very good movie. I had a small part in it, but it helped me.
0: But you had this like there's a it's a very specific thing that you do. There, there's a uh, you know there's a, a weird kind of almost uh, when you do comedy, there's an earnestness to your to your buffoonism. Thank you, <laughs> that, thank you. Does that I made make a sense? Career out of
1: that? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. That's <laughs> my career in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> and but earnestness to his
0: buffoonism. Exactly. <laughs> That's my mantra. It's, it, I'm not being insulting. Not at all. Because I mean, you are a type. I am. But, uh, you know, when it comes to that, but like working with those guys, I mean, Alan Arkin, it, oh, God, he's too much. Everything. The greatest,
1: and Peter. Yeah.
0: Could I ask you something? <laughs> On the night of the 14th, did you actually take that gun
1: and put it back in the drawer? I mean,. Peter was the greatest and you did Columbo great- right I did Columbo yeah but those I were did like a couple of them you
0: did a lot of small TV parts yeah a lot unbelievable it, it's just like it's unbelievable the career you had and everybody like n- everyone knows you. I mean, you're one of those guys. I've been around since, you know,
1: 1967. So, yeah, in this town, I know a lot of people. A lot of people know me. So I'm very lucky. And
0: now when your father saw you, did he live long enough to, to see you take? No,
1: he didn't see me do much. He saw me do a little. When he was still alive, I wasn't getting much acting work, and I desperately wanted to work in TV and film. So I started working as an assistant cameraman. And had something of a career doing that, you know, mm-hmm. a first assistant cameraman, mm-hmm. and that was good work and paid well.
0: Union work, yeah. Mm-hmm. I,
1: I couldn't get in the IATSC, but I got in another union called NABET, mm-hmm. and they do uh, they did a lot of commercials and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. they, these companies, Wakeford Orloff and Kaleidoscope, they did a lot of commercials. I worked on a million commercials and a few low low budget movies, and I started to you know do well as an assistant and made some good dough. And so uh, I thought that was it, and then. The show room 222 beckoned you know karen valentine that's right and james l brooks was head writer and i think he liked somebody did yeah oh my
0: god and so great great writer yeah but it's like i used to watch that with my my parents yeah like i I, like i my recollection of that is like as a little kid i had no idea that james l brooks i mean it's so weird that these people they start and they stay i know The, the guys that lock in they really lock in they lock in
1: That's unbelievable. Brilliant from the get go. So suddenly I had this much easier job of acting Mm -hmm. back in, you know, the early seventies. So I I put the uh, camera work aside and just focused on the acting, and then the acting wasn't getting me the parts I really wanted, then I did the stand-up, so I could write my own part, if you will, Mm -hmm. by writing a stand-up act, Mm -hmm. and that was kind of, then, again, I got married, and the stand-up just didn't seem like the right life, because I was trying to straighten up and what have you, and so I stopped doing that and just focused on the acting, and that's been it since... Well, th-
0: well, it's interesting because in the beginning, you know, you do you you can do anything. I mean, you're a real character actor. I mean, you can do straight roles. That's very here. nice, thank you. Yeah, but uh, but like real quickly, Monty Hellman and that whole crew and Warren Oates and those guys. Before we get out of the '70s, I mean, Monty Hellman really made you know two important movies. And and uh, what was it? The uh, two, uh, two Lane co- Black Blacktop and the Cockfight. Right. And then like what you know, like working with guys like that. I mean. And even Paul Schrader, who has who has gone on to you know, he wrote a lot of movies, and and, and he's a very you know challenging character. That there was a sense of uh, of art in the seventies that really defined a, a whole generation of filmmakers. I mean, were you conscious of that? I mean, was very it-
1: much so. I wanted to work with all those people at BBS, and I worked with Bob Rafelson on a movie called Stay Hungry. Which was Arnold's first movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger was uh-huh. in that, and Sally Field was in it, uh-huh. and uh, lots of other good people were in it, and and so I I worked on that, and uh, I you know I was working with Monty Hellman, I was working with Jack Nicholson, I was working with Paul Schrader, so I was you know, and they were the, all aware that they were changing
0: the game in a way. Yeah,
1: it's that, that wonderful book, you know, uh, Easy Rider and Raging and Bulls. And Raging Bulls, yeah. yeah. It's a very good book, and I think pretty accurate by what I know of, of things at that time.
0: And when uh, so when the break came, I mean, I guess St. Elsewhere is the biggest thing, right? The big that, break.
1: The, that before was... that, my kind of mini-breaks were Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I was the deaf mute on that, but that was such a popular show. I'd walk through the airport, and people would recognize me, and it led to some work. And the she... next kind of mini-break was uh, The In-Laws, and, uh, and then to a lesser extent, Cat People, uh, but then uh, St. Elsewhere from then on, you know, I've, I'd have to really scrub bad to not be able to work after I mean, you do a show like St. Elsewhere. And you were
0: a made guy then. I mean, that was, exactly. Yeah, but like Mary Hart, Mary Hartman, I mean, everyone who was that? Fred Willard was on that. Martin Mull, right? I mean, right. I mean, like everybody that became that crew. Of was I don't know. Was Harry Shearer involved in that? Where'd you meet those guys?
1: Those guys I met. I met Harry Shearer because I was a fan of The Credibility Gap, and I knew David L. Lander a bit, and I knew Michael McKean a bit. Or maybe I knew Harry first. I can't remember, but I knew those guys. I love The Credibility Gap. Yeah. They were so good. And then through Christopher Guest, I guess I got to know them better. How would you know Guest? I met him through his sister, Alyssa Guest. Uh-huh. And I actually met him around that same time through Tony Hendra when he was... Uh, Tony Hendra was editor of the National Lampoon. yeah. And they were doing the Radio Dinner album or maybe they had already done that. They're doing more radio So what you know, year that? Was it the late 70s? Yeah, this is the mid-70s
0: now. All right, so you're still high. Oh, God, ya. Yeah, yeah. But you, and you, they were in New York, wasn't it? Wasn't Hendra in New York? He was, and that's where I met Chris Guest for the first time with the Lampoon, the Lemming stuff, in the in the radio show. Yeah, and oh. I was
1: friendly with. Um, Her, um, uh, Harry Is that where Nelson you met Belushi too? too? Uh, I met uh, John at uh, with TV TV, This group that was Michael Shamberg, and it was uh, Hudson Marquez, and it was uh, Harold Ramis, and it was. Um, where were they, uh, Alan? Uh, They were in L.A. Uh This was in L.A. They had a place on Robertson, Alan Rucker, and they were uh, these people who did this kind of gorilla video Mm -hmm. with three-quarter-inch decks. Three-quarter was like small equipment at that time. Uh You know, they would do these things kind of, you know, and they had some portable three-quarter-inch decks, which were unheard of or what have you. They did a wonderful video thing, uh, a show about the Oscars with Lily Tomlin that's worth watching. It holds up to this day. They did lots of these gorilla... So you this is like right
0: after Chicago, John Belushi. Yes. Is, uh, so it was before New York. and Right. Yeah. Uh,
1: he had, he got Saturday Night Live right around that same time, and he had done one of these videos for those guys at TVTV, TV and I met him then, and then, you know, saw him on Saturday Night Live and went, Jesus Christ, I, I had no idea how immensely talented he was. I never saw him at Second City, wow. you know, but I... I uh, heard he was great and he was great and then we worked together on going, going south. south and became good friends. And you mentioned Harry Nelson. Harry Nelson and I were pals. We met in LA years before. You so were I was... really
0: in with the fucking hardcore... Yeah. <laughs> Harry
1: Nelson. one night... <laughs> <You goodness. laughs> no, it's one afternoon in yeah. New York when New York he said, meet me at 6 I'll, I'll come by in a cab and we'll go over we're gonna have dinner with some friends. I mm-hmm. went, okay. We get, I get in the cab and we go with Harry Nelson, and we stop at the Dakota. Yeah. Okay, I go, out. no, it couldn't be. Yeah, right. He said, we're going to have dinner with friends. It's not those friends. No. Go up in the elevator. Door opens. Hello, Yoko. Look who's here. It's Hattie and and Una. And who's this bloke? Wait a minute. I know you. You're in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Come oh, on. My, Yoko, it's a deaf mute from Mary Hartman. He was like asking me questions about Louise Lasser. He's acting like yeah. slightly starstruck right. about the show. Yeah. I'm trying to keep my face from cracking. Oh, my cause, God. Because, you know, I'd hung out with Ringo and love Ringo. and yeah. he's a he was a friend. I met him through Harry. Yeah. But I'd never met Paul or George uh-huh. or, or, or John Or John. At and now you're point. at his house. I'm at his house having macrobiotic food that Yoko made. Oh, my God. And Sean's asleep in the other room. It's like, it was crazy. It was crazy a time. It was good dinner? It was a great dinner. Yeah. A great time. Because he's a funny guy, right? Very funny, very charming, and very open, kind of like... Harry, it's not like it was, he said. You know, we don't have to. When we come into Kennedy Airport, there's not, you know, throngs of young women waiting anymore. Right. I can move freely around New York, he said, yeah. you know, in yeah. a, a, an uh, ominous, ominous yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. You know, he. I'd go walk through Central Park with a baby and we push the pram and there's no problem. Nobody bothers us. Oh. And then his sense of freedom was perhaps misdirected.
0: Mm, but how many years
1: after that? That was it. Oh, it was, oh. this was 70. Not too long after, huh?
0: six what when did he die yeah it
1: was a few years later it was years later but i guess you can't live in he lived the better life not living in fear of that i suppose you know i wish he was around longer but he didn't want to live in fear of something like what did happen or anything he just moved freely and what an incredible man that must
0: have been so overwhelming overwhelming to be there and to be and harry i mean harry like i just started getting into harry I mean, I got the box set over there, and I just started buying his records. I in the vinyl. Amazing! What a I great never, singer yeah, songwriter. I never knew, you know, the the depth of it, and it, yeah, and I just started getting into it because I, you know, and, and I was seeing. Like there's a vinyl resurgence, so you start seeing these people that were people start talking about Harry Nelson. So I start buying this stuff, and I'm like, holy fuck, he, a guy could really sing, and he could him. sing. Oh my! And God. And the sweetest guy that ever lived. And it, I just watched that documentary. Did you watch it? There's no. A, there's a new documentary about you know the sort of arc of his life and his career. I gotta watch that. I'm. Do, a big were you fan. friends with him till the end? You know, I the, was
1: very much so. We hung out regularly, and he and Ringer and I would spend time together. And uh, he was a great friend, and Uno. A, his widow, a great friend, and I knew his kids a little bit. I haven't seen Una the kids in a while, but mm-hmm. she's since remarried and she's doing fine. But uh,
0: what a great guy! It's an he interesting was. doc. You should watch it on Netflix because it really tracks, you know, his career in all its phases, and it really kind of goes into a little bit that friendship with Lennon and that record they made together, and how like there was a sort of weird, you know, competitiveness between them and how they pushed each other to the to the limits you know creatively and it's, it's very interesting because it suggests that during the recording of that record you know John had you know sort of pushed Harry too hard and that you know it shredded his vocal cords something did happen to his vocal
1: cords and I don't know it might have happened then I never knew when it happened but mm-hmm. something definitely happened Yeah, you, know, you should
0: watch that all right so well, back to you Saying uh-huh. elsewhere yeah. Turns everything around. Turns
1: everything around. Then wh- I was kind of set for life. After you're, after you're on a show like that, Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, L.A. Law, yeah. you have to screw up in such a big way to not work the rest and he, of your and this, life. And
0: this happened when you were sober. So, I mean, yeah. you were you were kind of, you know, you were on a good path.
1: I was on a good path. I was several years sober, and I got the best job at that point in my career, uh, and I I I cherished every minute. I was wise enough at that point to not go, oh, well, you know, you know. Finish me up so I can get home. I right. was like happy to be there every day, walking through the hallways of the St. you know, set, whistling every day and, and smiling. It was a, a great job. Bruce Paltrow was a great friend, and he really took a character that wasn't at all a regular. I tried out for a regular part in that show and didn't get it. So yeah. they threw me a bone, gave me this character, Ehrlich, that was in one episode. Then it was in two. Then it was in three. Then it was in six. And pretty soon it was a regular and uh, had a certain amount of, you know, uh, focus of the show was on that character.
0: Uh-huh. And yeah, so when did your father pass?
1: He died in 1970. Ah, so before everything He took didn't off. get to see that. I wish he had. How about your mom? She died in 98, so she got to see all of that <laughs> <Okay>. stuff. <laughs> she yeah. got
0: to see the grandkids and everything. Uh, she, yeah, she met. Yeah, yeah
1: uh yes yeah, she she met my two grown kids yeah and uh got to know them wonderfully
0: so you've got two grown kids and a younger one
1: yeah i've got a 36 year old daughter wonderful young lady this eco hero who's beyond me in a green sense and in many other ways and my son wonderful son also a green activist but he's an electrical engineer huh. and he's this genius beyond description genius huh. computer coder and everything and He's given me two wonderful grandkids. And, and they turned
0: out all right. They turned out great. That's a that's a good story. And my fourteen
1: year old daughter Hayden, she sings like an angel and plays a guitar. and she's, the apple of my eye now, as are my grown kids still. You know, I'm I'm just blessed. I've got three wonderful
0: kids and, and a wonderful wife. And you, and you must have a pretty good genetic disposition. <laughs> I
1: guess so to live through. I never, Mark, I never thought I'd live this long. It 64. Doesn't sound like you should when have. I'm 64, will you still need me? Yeah. When you still, You're 64. I'm 64. I never thought I'd live to 44. Yeah. Then 54. Then 64. Yeah. I just never thought I'd make it.
0: And you never stop working. So let's talk about the relationship with, uh, with these guys, I find them. Fa- I had Catherine O'Hara in here. Oh God, do I, I love had, that one. And woman. Michael McKean I talked. To I know you just group. had
1: Michael fairly recently. Yeah,
0: yeah. And yeah, you know, they, they. You know, though that crew. You know, Christopher Guest doing you know, Bob Balaban. You know, Shearer, the Spinal Tap guys, and 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 the movies that that Guest does. There's there's something transcendent about what what happens in those movies, you know, Fred Willard. That I don't know if it's the improvisation or what, or or just the there there's a type of comedy that goes on uh, with that crew that that runs very deep. I and, think so. And and you know what? How did that relationship uh, sort of build with you with you and them? You know, I met Chris in the
1: early seventies, as I said, and then I started to work with Harry Shearer and I think Michael a bit. I was friends with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael and David L. Lander, uh, Laverne and Shirley, I'm hanging out with them there, and I'm doing loop group stuff, you know, kind of... That uh, ADR automated dialogue replacement they do on movies. They do a thing where the, for crowd scenes and other individual lines, like turning on a radio in a movie or a you know a PA system, you have to hire an actor to come in, a screen actor, skilled actor, to do those voices. Yeah. So I did that work with Harry for years, and we became friendly doing that and in, in many other ways. We did other kind of live shows together. We did a uh, Hollywood primary with Chris Guest at first, and some of those. I think Harry was part of it the whole time. I can't remember that, but uh, Harry is a brilliant, brilliant comedian, brilliant yeah. writer, brilliant yeah. actor, and so is Chris and Michael and David Aland. So I was friendly with all those guys from the Credibility Gap, and uh, and then suddenly, uh, you know, Rob, who's an old friend too, a great friend, they're deciding to do this show. Did Spinal you grow time. up
0: with him, in, or you...
1: no? But I got to know him in the seventies. Yeah, you know, I was a big fan of All in the Family, what have you, and, and Albert too. Ad. I know Albert a bit, too. Yeah, Yeah. I met him through some friends that went to Carnegie Tech with him. And uh, so I'm a big fan of Albert, huge fan of his, and got to be friends with him, too. Yeah, yeah, he's
0: funny. And so you and Rob, so Rob, so this comes to Spinal Tap? Yeah, uh and then they go,
1: hey, we're going to do this thing. I know you you still play the drums a little, don't you? I said, yeah, I haven't played in a while, but I'm sure I can play whatever you're doing. He said, we're going to do this thing. It's like a flashback, you know, and you're going to be the first drummer. You die in a bizarre gardening accident. Okay, whatever. Let's. When do we do it? Tuesday. Show up at this studio. Yeah, we yeah, did yeah. it. It was part of really just the presentation they were using to get the money to do the movie. Right. It wasn't supposed to be in the movie, but it was such deliberately low-res stuff for the flashback kinescope-looking thing uh-huh. that they said, well, we're going to keep that in the movie, the real movie, now that we're doing the the actual movie. Right, right. And uh, they did it, and uh, what a wonderful movie. It's a uh, one of the best movies, if not the best movie I've ever been in. Small yeah. part, but I don't care. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's sheer genius. Still. Yeah,
0: it's great. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to talk to Rob. So, like, but when you work with like on uh, Mighty Wind or the other one, the uh, for your consideration and best like, in show. Now, what what is the environment when you guys work together? How does Chris run a set? And like, do you, is there how much improv is there? Uh,
1: there's a lot of improv. He gives you a 25 page treatment that in the the, the first movies that I spoke about, everything but Family Tree. It was him and Eugene Levy writing that treatment, doing all the heavy lifting and uh-huh. putting that time and effort into writing that treatment. Then when you go on the set, perfect example, the first movie I did was called uh, Best in Show. There's a, a line of, uh, of stage direction, if you will, in the treatment it says Jerry and Cookie Fleck try to check into the hotel. Their credit card doesn't work. Yeah, So that's the scene. And then the rest, it's like, I'm there with Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, so I'm not worried about, is there going to be any dead silence? Yeah. You know, I just kind of try to be a real guy, at a a clerk at a hotel, and, you know, your credit card isn't working, and do all this stuff to just try to keep it real. Yeah. And then Chris says, and we're going to do a thing in this closet, too, where you talk about the cleaning supplies, and then you're going to eventually show them into the closet. Okay. Yeah. Great there's just lines of dialogue. Huh. I mean not of dialogue of, of stage direction right. with no dialogue. Then you fill in the dialogue. And occasionally Chris will in Family Tree they had a few lines written. They uh-huh. had some lines that, to build to a certain joke uh-huh. with a line, but uh for the early ones I don't remember any lines written for the for my character, but uh you uh, who else but Chris Guest would allow you the freedom in the movie A Mighty Wind for instance where I'm playing a Swedish American guy this pbs kind of producer to suddenly start spouting yiddish yeah most other you know guys would go they take off the headset a video village go i'll talk to him what the fuck are you doing what the fuck you're a swedish guy why are you speaking yiddish do it again without that that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard chris didn't say that he said wonderful we're gonna move in tighter let's do
0: another one so you came up with the yiddish bit
1: yeah it just occurred to me sitting there because i had nothing (laughs) i had nothing planned i went what is funny about this but i figured bob Balaban sitting across from me. His name is Steinblum, I think. Yeah. So I figured I'm one of those guys, those Goyish guys that's trying to ingratiate yeah. themselves to some Jewish guy by yeah. peppering the conversation with Yiddish inappropriately. <laughs> so that's what I did. And Balaban just sit there because he wasn't expecting it, looking yeah. at me like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> but Chris loved it. So we did it again and again from a few different angles and that was it. I'm sort of fascinated with Balaban. He's like a, he's a funny little guy. Amazing. <laughs> And backwards. so good in everything. We just did this thing, Muhammad <laughs> Ali's Greatest Fight, and he played this lawyer, and he was
0: smoking great, as yeah. he always is. Yeah. I and mean, he's been around a long time, too. Forever. Like, he was in Midnight Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy. In the bathroom. That young guy in the bathroom. Yeah. It's crazy. Amazing. So when did the... Because, uh, you know, I interviewed you once, I believe, when I was on Air America, about... I think you did. About the car the car movie. Yes. Yeah. About who killed the electric yeah. car. Yeah, yeah. When did the, you know, when did it just, were you struck by the desire to facilitate change or to live a different life?
1: Yeah, that started really in 1970. That really? started with the first Earth Day. Yeah, I started recycling, I started composting, I became a vegetarian. But still out of your mind on drugs and alcohol. Oh, totally.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's
1: great. Great, you know, a yeah. vegetarian, you know. Uh, You've been a vegetarian that long? Yeah, vegetarian addict activist. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I, um, yeah, I bought my first electric car in 1970. Wow. It was not much of a car. It was a Taylor Dunn, which was, you know, really like a golf cart with a windshield wiper and a horn, uh-huh. but I drove around the valley with it. Occasionally, I would venture over the hill, which was a real sight to behold, going over the Cahuenga Pass at 15 miles an hour in the Because they couldn't do any better, right? Yeah. It was a little tiny, slow vehicle.
0: Well, what do you think that was? I mean, like, because you, know, you knew you were living a life of, uh, you know, insanity. yet was it What do you think initially? It was just to to sort of give your life purpose or to ground you in something. That Nothing
1: seemed- was more important to me than the environment. You know, mm-hmm. the acting I love, and that has you know a great deal of meaning for me. But I really back then thought we got to do something. This mm-hmm. air is horrible in L.A. It, horrible. Yeah, it's Jokings. different now. Much better because it all worked. All the stuff we hoped would work. Did work what, catalytic converters the, right, right, on cars, right. combined cycle gas turbines, emissions just, testing, uh, all of it. Spray paint booze instead of those VOCs going up in the LA air, and now we have four times the cars since 1970,
0: millions more people, and a fraction of the smog. Mm-hmm. That's a success story, right? Now, if we can just get rid of some of the cars,
1: exactly, if we
0: just get public transport, and that was to me, that was the the most disturbing element of of I, I don't know if it was covered in that film. I don't know where I learned it. That you know, literally, you know. The, the you know the the public transportation infrastructure of the city was abandoned because of car companies. It was because of politics. Yep, and business politics.
1: They had the red car and they bought up that system here in L.A. and many other towns, and they dismantled it and they threw the red cars out in uh, Redondo Harbor actually, and that's there's a reef there uh, where you can fish off the the old de- decomposing red cars. Yeah. There's a guy that was harbormaster who's on the Harbor Commission. It, he told me about it.
0: It's insane and disturbing that there's not a functioning, you know, a, a, a convenient public well, transportation. Well, it's better now. Yeah. Now we
1: have not only the red line, but the gold line, the blue line, yeah. and the, you know, silver line. Do and people use green, them? All the time. Yeah. I, here's my pass i yeah. take it you know i live in studio city so for me it's so easy to go to that universal stop there right i've got the red line bus right at laurel and ventura near where i live in studio city so i hop on that or take my electric car and drive to the universal stop and from there i can go all over the city
0: so you and you're uh, and you do that
1: i do it all the time when i did that david Mamet play a year ago in november at the taper It was ridiculous to even take the electric car there. I wouldn't have dreamt of it because they they charge you for parking. You get a discount because you're doing a play, but you still have to pay for it. I wouldn't have dreamt of doing that. I got my pass. I have my annual pass. I buy every year. So I took it there and back. I could read my lines, study my lines on the way there and the way home every day, every night. I rehearsed and did the play. I take it, forget about the play. I do it all the time. When I have to go to downtown, when I have to go to Hollywood, I'm working perfect example. I'm doing this Amazon show called Betas. Yeah. We're shooting in Culver City. I wouldn't dream of taking my electric car there. You know, I take the the uh, Red Line to Metro Seventh there, and I take the Expo Line right to Culver City. And How long does it take? It's about an hour. Uh-huh. But what does it take in rush hour? Forty-five minutes. Yeah, it, it'll take you. It'll take you an hour and a half at nine o'clock to get there. And you
0: actually have time. You can actually uh, have some personal time. I do the crossword. Yeah, yeah. I
1: sit there and learn my lines and do the crossword.
0: As as opposed to yell at people in your car.
1: Exactly. Get all stressed (laughs) out.
0: But I mean, but your your activism goes, it, it seems to go deeper than that. I mean, you're involved in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, with uh, with what exactly do you, what do you do?
1: I'm on a lot of environmental boards. I'm the, on the board of the Coalition for Clean Air. They do a lot of good work. Part of the reason the air is cleaner today than it was in 1970 w- mm-hmm. with millions more people and four times the cars is because of the Coalition for Clean Air. It's one of the biggest changes. How green is
0: your house? Oh, it's very
1: green. I have a 1936 home that was very energy inefficient. I made it incredibly efficient, And uh, that I bought in 1988, but we are now building a lead platinum home. We're going to go on to another level of green, which is uh, lower energy use than the house I'm in now, lower water use and everything, uh, more room to grow vegetables and what have you and fruit trees. And that house uh, we're working on right now, that's about a mile east of where I currently live and we're building a, my wife and I, a lead platinum home. We're doing a show about it called On Begley Street Uh that details all the... uh, you know all the uh successes and failures of uh, of trying to do this
0: uh totally green home cuz who has one I was uh, I was at Sam Simon's house and he's got a you know full on he's got green everything so right. Sam's a dear friend he's got
1: great solar he's got a you know, at least 10 maybe a 20,000 gallon rainwater catchment system
0: yeah and I think his entire home uh, is runs on solar that's right yeah does yours
1: oh yes uh, not the current home because I have shading to the south. I can only fit on this small roof six kilowatts of solar, and there's a lot of shading starting in October and ending in March uh-huh. from the house to my south. Right. And so because of that, I can't get fully off the grid. But the new home, I will be off the grid.
0: Huh? That's fascinating to me. Yeah. And you use uh, you do the the green the gray water thing.
1: Yeah, I've got gray water uh, at my. Uh, the new home we have gray water the current home I have rainwater but only 600 gallons of rainwater storage the new home I'll have 10,000 gallons of rainwater storage and gray water to supplement it solar hot water 10 kilowatts of excellent Panasonic solar panels a Lutron system which is this wonderful system that makes all the lighting and shades very energy efficient it times it by the sunlight and the time of day and what have you
0: now in terms of 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 this you know evolving into a practical way of life. For, for more people. Right. I mean, what really has to happen? Because I, it, it's got to cost a small fortune to do what you're doing. Exactly, and that's why I urge people to do it exactly the way I did it. People regularly come up and, I can't
1: afford a fancy electric car like you, or a big six-kilowatt system. I went, good. Neither could I in 1970 when I started. I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't go into debt buying 1970 solar panels I couldn't afford. Mm-hmm. It took me 20 years to do that kind of stuff. Two decades. Mm-hmm. Do what I did in 1970, the cheap and easy stuff. You know, I started recycling. I started composting. Nowadays, you can buy these energy-efficient light bulbs, energy-saving thermostat, weather stripping that's easy to put up, you know, bike riding when weather and fitness permits. I showed you my transit pass, public Mm -hmm. transportation, home gardening, home composting. Everything that I just mentioned, Mark, cheap, cheap, and easy. You do that stuff, you will save money. Then maybe you move up the ladder and do a medium-ticket item like a solar oven mm-hmm. or a rain barrel to collect some rainwater. Then you move up the ladder, maybe do some attic insulation. What
0: do you use the rainwater for?
1: You can use it for irrigation, uh-huh. to irrigate your, your fruit trees or how, your And how plants. much
0: gardening do you, how much
1: do you eat from your garden? A lot. I a lot being like 25, 30%. Right. You know, I go to the store a fair amount too. Yeah. But uh, you know, I grow a lot. I had a great, I had two great uh, crops of corn. You know, uh-huh. I had one in uh, June, june july then i had some uh august september do you can do you
0: pickle do you
1: i don't i either give it away if i don't eat it fresh i like everybody to have it real fresh and i can so i if i've got extra tomatoes or extra something or extra corn i give it away but Uh i
0: but i eat most of it i don't give much away Uh uh-huh and and so in in terms of like because you seem very uh you know open-hearted about this whole thing and not not proselytizing or, or 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 condescending about it i mean is the hope that, uh, you know, that that people, you know, wake up to this still? I mean, I, I, in terms of, do, do you think that there's a shift possible that, that people will will live like this in, in a large way?
1: I think so. I think there's two big lies about the environment. One mm-hmm. is that there's no problem. You don't have to do anything. We're going to be just fine. This yeah. is, you know, just a natural thing we're going through and it'll be fine. We no, it won't harm us or any other species. Don't worry. That's, I think... A mistaken notion. The other one is that it's so far gone, you can't do anything. There's yeah. nothing we can do. Right. Forget about it. Those two lies at the opposite end of the spectrum, I think, don't serve us. I think there's much you can do. I think, uh, and some people criticize me Ed's talking about light bulbs and thermostats, and we got some serious problems with climate change. That's, you know, like putting a, uh, you're holding this handkerchief up to a, a massive head wound. Right. They're correct. It is. But sometimes you've got to hold a hanky to the massive. Head wound to make it to the emergency room. Yeah, and that's what we got to do. We got to do that for now and get to the major surgery we have to do, which is getting off fossil fuels yeah. and uh, g- getting to more sustainability. But energy efficiency is the road
0: to more sustainability and to more, you know, uh, renewable energy. And you think that w- that the reason why there there there's apathy and cynicism is primarily because of the reinforcement of of the fossil fuel paradigm and and corporate interests you know through advertising through misinformation through everything because you you sort of wonder like myself you know i'm going to do some work on my house and my i i'm just me i don't i don't use much but i still you know i use energy efficient light bulbs good for you but i haven't taken any real steps towards you know really thinking about that because there's part of me that thinks like you know what what difference is it really going to make
1: right that's what most people think people are resistant to change that's human nature so the the fossil fuel industry doesn't have to work that hard to convince people well, to, to do be, nothing, right? Because, you know? But the
0: car thing is is starting to change. I mean, people—it's a—it's a, va- a valid option There's to a get a hybrid or to exactly. get a plug.
1: Yeah, and some of the pl- some of the hybrids have a plug, like yeah. the Chevy Volt, which is a great car, which you can drive forty miles on pure electric, then you can drive to New York in it if you want on gasoline. Huh. So it's a perfect one size fits all. What, car. Which one life. do you drive? I have the Rav Four outside. It's a, a two thousand and two uh rav4 toyota It's a toyota pure electric that huh. i still drive around how about. much
0: did, How much does it eat up a lot of electric electricity
1: it, it would take a fair amount if i was just using the grid but i uh plug it in you know uh, on my home which has a lot of solar huh. and i can buy power cheap at night which you can sign up for if you have an electric car you can get what's called a time of use meter so you can get an 80 mile range you know uh, charge that's how far the car will go 86 miles you can get that amount of range for about uh, three bucks, hmm. three bucks worth of power. So that's a pretty good price. A gallon of gas is how much now? Four
0: f- something. Yeah, three to four. Three
1: f- three sixty huh. three three something. And you're going eighty some odd miles for maybe three dollars. That's not a you know sometimes a little bit less that's a good deal yeah if you just plug it into the grid yeah and if you've invested as i have years ago in 1990 i invested in solar so i own that system i'm not making any payments on it right i own it and so uh that's a good way to charge my car and run my house
0: and this stuff is really you know uh, apart from anything else career-wise the most important stuff <clears throat> it is yeah it
1: is it's very important to me that's why i serve on so many boards i'm on don henley's Walden Woods Project Board, you know, the Thoreau Institute. I'm on a lot of different boards and other stuff. It's not just the environment. I'm on the board of the Midnight Mission trying to help people downtown LA uh-huh. uh, get their lives back together. And, you know, I, I try to be of service. I've been so lucky. You want to you be of service in every way you can.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's, uh, that, uh, that's one of the reasons why you, you, you're in such good mental and physical spirits, You're very kind. Thanks too, buddy. Thanks, man. I'm trying. I I don't eat well right now, but I'm not going to get into me. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you, Mark. That's our show. Thank you for listening. How great was that conversation, man? Didn't you want to go to those parties? Didn't you want to hang out at the Manson Ranch for a minute just to see what was up? The Spawn Movie Ranch. Hey, Charlie. So you're Charlie. He didn't know. He didn't know. Ed Begley. Real treat Thank you for listening I am Mark Marin if you forgot This is WTF Go to WTFpod.com For all your WTF pod needs We're going to be updating the site Making things easier Making things more interesting Providing uh, some new shit As I said If you upgrade to premium Very shortly You will be hearing some Special behind the scenes uh, Deep cut uh, WTF picks From uh, myself and my producer Brendan McDonald uh, We'll be chatting uh, as, as premium content for you premium people, you're all premium to me, but you know what I'm saying. You do a bunch of those, some other stuff coming in. What else can I tell you? You know what to do, man. You know what to do. Fucking high cholesterol, dude. I, I ate oatmeal this morning. I ate oatmeal this morning. I exercised. And I and I didn't, and I'm not, I'm going to go easy on the uh, animal intake. Go easy on the animal intake Boomer lives!